HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. And when I'm not hosting In the Drink here at Heritage, you can find me where I act as beverage director and partner to our restaurants, Del Anima, Lartuzzi, Lepicho, and Anfora. And uh, for this summer only, well, maybe next year too, <laughs> to be determined, we're at the Highline Hotel um, at Alta Linea in their absolutely beautiful courtyard um, serving up frozen Negronis amongst other things Um, if you are a fan of In the Drink um, please do subscribe to us on iTunes or you can always listen to back episodes as well as episodes streaming live on www.heritageradionetwork.org um, and thanks so much for tuning in. So today I'm, uh, I'm really excited. I have uh, someone who has a, uh, a shared uh, interest in, uh, in uh, vermouth, in fortified wines, except he has gone ahead and made it his career. Um, we have Adam Ford in the house today. Adam is uh, the founder of Adspeed Vermouth and also the author of this absolutely gorgeous book uh, called Vermouth, The Revival of the Spirit That Created America's Cocktail Culture. It is beautiful. It is the um, the work, the official, in my opinion, uh, work on, on all things vermouth. So, Adam, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Thank you, Joe. This is uh, really great to be here. And thanks for the kind words about, about the book. Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of blown away. Uh, you know, you have a full successful career as a lawyer, um, and you've gone ahead and created this uh, great uh, vermouth company, which you can find at Spew Vermouth, by the way, at Anfora and also at Alta Linea, um, where we have a ton of vermouth there, uh, and also written this extremely well-researched book. How do you find the time? I feel like I am busy, but I, now I, all of a sudden I feel like uh, I, I, I'm not as accomplished as I should be. 
Yeah, uh, the, I, I don't really have a good answer. Uh, efficiency, lack of sleep uh, are two things that come to mind. Uh, I don't know uh, how, I, how I do it. I just um, I found a really nice uh, space, a really nice career. I really enjoy being a lawyer. Uh, it's just uh, I get a lot of fulfillment from, from that, using that side of my brain. Uh, and then a couple of years ago after I did this, uh, the hike, uh, you know, the tour to Mont Blanc where my wife and I hiked around Mont Blanc, and I discovered kind of what vermouth really could taste like when, when made properly uh, with quality ingredients. I just, it just something hit me that this was something I needed to bring back to the United States and kind of introduce people to and get them into drinking again. Uh, and in the process, I realized I was able to use kind of a completely different side of, of my brain, get a little bit more creative, uh, a little bit more artistic. Uh, and, and I've managed to somehow merge, merge the two. And as it turns out, I used you know, all the skills I've kind of built from going to law school and being a lawyer, you know, uh, first to create at Speed Vermouth. I had to teach myself how to make it, which required a ton of research. Uh, and then obviously the book is kind of filled with the well over 100 pages uh, of research. Also, um, you know, completely new stuff, you know, all original source material. So, so when you were on this on this hiking trip, um, you weren't drinking martini and rosy, right? What 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 did you find there that we couldn't find here? And and where were you on the Swiss side of Mont Blanc, or were you on the Italian Monte Bianco side? Yeah, we were we were we had just come into uh, the Italian side. So you start in Cormayor, uh, you you walk. Um, I'm sorry. I, I mean, I'm sorry. You, you start in um in um. Uh, oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> uh, I, I know the answer to this, but I'm just making you work for it. Yeah, no, no, no. So, no, <laughs> no. Uh, um, I'm completely blanking. So you start in the you know the French town, uh, you, you um, Chamonix. My goodness, uh, Chamonix. And then when you're about nine days in, you finally get to Italy, and that's where you hit the uh, the resort town of Cormaior, which is this really kind of idyllic Italian ski resort. This was in July um, when we were there, so. Um, uh, you know, summertime, mm-hmm. and the answer, I don't, I'm not sure what vermouth it was. I wasn't, at the time, I wasn't paying attention. It was just kind of vermouth, which was kind of a new experience. And it was my wife who suggested I try it. Uh, I don't think it was, it was martini and Rossi. All, although, as it turns out, you know, the martini and Rossi that was, that's being served in Italy, as I came and found out, was, was a, is a different formula. So it tastes quite different. Um, they actually just um, released, I don't know if it's the same exact formula, but they just put out what they call their reserve vermouth, mm-hmm. um, which they just released the Tales of the Cocktail, and it's now in the United States. And it is—it's a, a much higher quality, uh, so it's actually quite good um, vermouth that they're now sh- uh, sending to America for the first time. Wow! And so, is this—is this hike? Uh, this is a thing that people do, or is this uh, something that you? Is this kind of like a well-established hiking route that? Oh. It's kind of a bucket list sort of thing, or oh, is this just you guys designed it yourselves? No, no, no. Yeah, no. It's called so it's called the Tour du Mont Blanc. Okay. It's actually referred to, um, and they call it the nicest walk in Europe. So it's it's a well plotted trail. Um, that I don't know the numbers. Thousands of people do it uh, every year. And what's so fantastic about it is, unlike hiking in the United States, where a lot of times you're in the woods, you got to carry your own tent. Maybe you have a lean to. There in Europe, there's such this nice sophistication. They've got these little, you know, kind of huts and restaurants all along the way. You literally don't need to carry anything more than just your backpack and a bottle of water and, and, and maybe some trail mix or something. Because for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're at these really nice, not nice, but just, you know, um, little kind of huts, but cooking really nice food uh, all along the way. And then you sleep and, you know, some of them are 
you know, kind of bunks where you're just kind of on top of strangers. Wow. Um, so you get back and you're like, honey, I, I want to, on top of being a lawyer and uh, I'm sure working more hours than anyone else, uh, you know, do you want to start this new business? And what was that conversation? When did that kind of realization happen? It, it was a couple years. It was a couple years later. Um, you know, I mean, it was kind of in my mind, but it, it's it's um, it's not that I just kind of got back to the United States. I have to do this. It was, yeah. it was one of those things where I get back to the United States. I go back to work. We had had a wonderful trip, a wonderful um, time. You know, I had a wonderful experience that night. And it's as I start to kind of look around and see that Americans are getting really into craft spirits. Mm-hmm. You know, Tuttletown by this time had come out and really made a mark. There's all these craft spirits going out. The cocktail movement's going on. The craft beer is getting cool. And I'm realizing that nobody has improved vermouth. No one had done a craft vermouth. Um, and and once I started thinking about it, how important vermouth is to all of these cocktails, all the classic cocktails, it struck me as really strange. And that kind of that put me on the path of, oh, wait a second, why don't I try and do a craft vermouth? Why don't I try and, um, you know, bring the, that ethos of the yeah, craft I can think story. of even uh, seven, eight years ago when we opened El Anima, um, when uh, Carpano Antica formula, I think, had just come to the market, and it was in short supply. Yeah. And people were very, very, very excited about it, because that was really the only premium vermouth that we had yeah. at the time. A- absolutely, yeah. And and it's it's interesting that you even mention knowing about Antica formula, because it was in very, seven, eight years ago, it was very limited supply. When I first did my business plan for Atsby, which I think I first started drafting in around 2010, it, I thought there was like Martini and Rossi, Cinzano and Noily Pratt. I mean, Do- Dolene hadn't yet come into the market. Carpano, I, I think, was around, but it wasn't. It, not everyone, very few people knew about it, right? It, it just didn't seem to be. Uh, it just wasn't there. So it was, um, you know. Yeah, I think it was my fir- it was my first time buying uh, spirits or. Uh, or wine, really, but uh, so I was looking through all of the price books and trying to research like what were Italian products that we could put into this Italian-ish restaurant uh, that yeah. is Del Anima, yeah. and I just kind of came across it, uh, and it was and it was great, and uh, the packaging was beautiful, and it's like oh this this is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great product. It, it is, and, and the Carpano company deserves a lot of credit for getting people into vermouth. It really was kind of the first, you know, really high quality kind of delicious vermouths that, that, that Americans have been exposed to. Yeah. One of the cool things uh, I love uh, about your book is really the, the amount of history that you put into it. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about Carpano as creating vermouth in this Antica formula as maybe being the original formula, maybe not. But you, you say in the book that there's actually this really long history, millennia of people drinking fortified and aromatized wine well before Carpano invented it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that, that, that was, this was the, the history, like I said, I, I was also, by the way, a, a history major at the University of Pittsburgh, so I really loved kind of getting into it. And it's fascinating to kind of discover that humans have been putting herbs and spices and roots and barks in their fermented beverages, uh, fermented berries, and, and then including grapes as well, going back, you know, almost eight, nine, ten thousand years or some of the earliest samples. Um, and and it ha- it's happening everywhere. It's happening in China. It's happening in Persia, in India, um, in South America, not in North America, interestingly, but but all over the world. And and frankly, f- uh, for several I think thousand years, independent. So there's kind of these. It's it's not as though the idea of aromatized wine starts in one place and then travels around. People independently are figuring this out. 
Uh, that part of the story is fascinating. And then even just the very rich history of uh, aromatized wines, which I refer to as vermouth's kind of closest cousins, uh, you know, during the Roman Empire, there's something called uh, Mulsum and Conditum, something called Hippocras, all of which were based on this idea of taking an aromatized wine, aromatizing it with different herbs and spices from around the world, uh, some local, some from around the world, uh, and then sweetening it. And then the, you know, the fortification winds up coming up, I think, in the, the 15th century. And the fortification is a, a more when wines were being shipped on boats, right, and mm-hmm. to keep it stronger and prevent oxidation. That's exactly right. Yeah, people figured that out, yeah. If you, that's pretty, pretty <laughs> smart. Um, and the, what is the introduction of wormwood that actually makes, uh, makes vermouth, as we know today, to have some portion of wormwood um, into it? Well, the, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. It's kind of like the, the wormwood question, right? This is the thing that that's people the, that's have That's the big one, the, right? The, the, the big one. Uh, the answer because, is... Yeah, because wormwood is I think, now today a, a controlled substance, right? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's been... Right, it was, it was banned in, in I think, uh, 1910 or the early 1900s. Um, so, and so the story, everyone was talking about, you know, do you need wormwood to make vermouth? This is kind of the big, um, the big debate. And when I was studying vermouth and figuring out how to make it, um, just nobody was talking about wormwood because there was, you know, it's just nobody was talking about it. And my understanding of it was it was a bit of a relic. It was something that at one point was added, but certainly hadn't been used for well over 100 years. So when I made my vermouths, I, I didn't use wormwood. I, I, frankly, I tasted it. I found it overly bitter, and I found the only way to con, um, you know, contrast that bitter was to add too much sugar. Uh, and I wanted vermouths that, that weren't overly sweet and overly bitter. So I left it out, and I didn't realize that it was going to start this big debate, uh, you know, frankly, started by the European uh, producers. I think it was a bit of a, um, just a public relations ploy, really, because when you look at the history uh, of, of vermouth, you know, wormwood certainly plays a role, but it's not, um, it's not quite as instrumental as, as I think a lot of people have been writing. And certainly nowadays, um, and certainly for the past 100, 110 years, the amount of wormwood, if used at all, uh, has been so minuscule, you, you can't even taste it. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and some, you know, a lot of people now are trying to go back and say, oh, we use wormwood. But even if you're using wormwood today, you have to strip it of its chemical um, component, which is called thujone. Uh, you're only allowed to use 10 parts per million thujone um, in vermouth or, or any beverage, absinthe, which is why absinthe producers don't really use wormwood anymore. They use uh, anise and, and fennel. Um, so uh, the thing with the wormwood is that even if you're using it, you're stripping it of mm-hmm. its active chemical component. So it's a bit of a, of a eunuch uh, at that point. So a, a lot of people get excited that they're saying that they're using, we use wormwood. Uh, and it's like, oh, okay, but you're not using any thujone. So all you're kind of doing is saying, you know, we, we're putting in a, a little bit of the spice, it's not too much it. flavor. It doesn't even give you much, you know. Uh, you're relying, because even, if, you know, if you make a... a I think a good vermouth. You know, you're using dozens of botanicals. Uh, wormwood is is just a you know a very it's, small. It's part like it's like having a layover layover at the Rome airport, never leaving the airport, and saying you went to Italy. Almost. I I think that's right. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, you're I, stepping I'll into it just a little bit, but you really didn't get anything out of it. Th- I think yeah, that's exactly right. That, that's my that's that's certainly my my take on it. Yeah. Well, do, do you, I wonder if if you find that this big publicity stunt from the from the European producers who got so. 
uh, riled up about. Maybe it was beneficial to everyone. They got the press, and you got the press, and people defended strongly in, in either way. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think conversation. it's hard to see. Yeah, that, that very well might be it. I mean, the whole look. Um, the answer is um, I, I don't. I don't know, right? I mean, it's interesting. Vermouth is very popular now. It's really kind of trending. Um, uh, thankfully, there's been a lot of excitement about the book. It's been selling. People yeah. are kind of getting into the topic, and I think. You know, look, the debate may have have played into it. At the same time, uh, you know, I've sat around um, a lot of conferences hearing uh, representatives from some of the big brands talking about how American vermouth producers should not be able to call their products vermouth. Um, which is just kind of preposterous. So right. m- maybe it's maybe it's been good, but um, but certainly frustrating along the way. Have you been able to get your hands on enough Dujon to, to cause damage to to have some fun with it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I have it. I mean, I've I've I've, 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 I've tried a lot of different wormwoods. I've drank a lot of. Wormwoods. Actually, as it turns out, and here's the thing with with Dujon, you, you do have to get it really high to to do any sort of neurological damage. I, I, I don't even know. You'd really have to. It'd be intentional. Uh, but there's actually more thujone, as it turns out, in sage uh, than there is in wormwood. Interesting. By leaps and bounds. Um, I do use sage in both my vermouths. But interestingly, if you use sage, you actually don't have to get it tested or nobody cares. Um, so and so I, I actually I haven't had my vermouths tasted. I, I don't know how much thujone is. But I do, I do use sage, and so it's very possible... Um, that the Thujon content is actually higher in Atspe than it is in, in Martini and Rossi. So, mar, mar, by just by way of, you know, Martini and Rossi, um, their Thujon level is is zero, absolutely zero. Um, so they've treated it and stripped it out. They've completely stripped it. Yeah, a lot of producers, you'll find trace amounts. Yeah, um, they're a bigger company. I think they're able to treat it. Uh, they really know what they're doing, and so they compl- there's zero Thujon in, in the Martini and Rossi. Wow. Um, so drink ads, be vermouth, and get your uh, daily requirement of Thuja. Uh, on that note, we are going to take a, uh, a quick break. We'll be back with more of Adam Ford, the founder of Adsby Vermouth and the author of Vermouth, the revival of the spirit that created America's cocktail culture in just a minute. Take a sip from your just Michter's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost-be-damn, taste-is-everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said, it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. 
For more information, visit Michter's.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. All right, and we are back on In the Drink. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and we are in the studio today with Adam Ford, uh, the founder of Adsby Vermouth and author of uh, the seminal book on vermouth um in the kind of subtext of the title it says the revival of the spirit that created america's cocktail culture we, we spoke a little bit about how um uh vermouth uh, less than a decade ago was uh, uh the, the options were very very few and now there are many um but i'd really like to for a minute focus on this idea of the spirit that created america's cocktail culture and how and when did that happen yeah, that's that's a great question. This chapter was uh, far and away my my favorite uh, chapter to write. As it turns out, most of the action takes place in, in New York City, uh, and what I why I gave it that subtitles because that's really what I focus in uh, focus on in this book. There's a lot of story. I mean, Vermouth has a ten thousand year old history. I say right from the beginning. I'm not covering it all in, in, in this book. I'm going to try and do as much as I can here, but there's lots more to be researched and, and written. But what I really did focus on was Vermouth's role in cocktail culture. And it's, you know, David Wondrich, the you know world's foremost cocktail historian, has referred to Vermouth as the wonder ingredient. And I think he was dead on in that description because what happened, it's cocktails really start getting created, really take off. Once vermouth gets to to U.S. shores, and particularly in, in New York City in the 1860s, uh, 1870s, and then 1880s is when it's really taking off. But you know the country's best bartenders, um, you know Harry Johnson, Jerry Thomas, the only William, all these guys that have been canonized recently, all of their cocktail books being recently republished and, and flying off the shelves. They were all bartending uh, along a, straw, a small stretch on Broadway. Um, frankly, between uh, Houston and Prince Street, what's now Soho. The, the best designation you could earn was a Broadway bartender. And what happens is these guys, once Vermouth gets here, all of a sudden cocktails move from, you know, being kind of, you know, sugar, bitters, and spirit into all of these wild different flavors and concoctions. Um, you know, the, the Manhattan is created there by a man named Black in the 1860s. Uh, the Manhattan, by the way, and the Martini, uh, the original recipes call for two ounces of vermouth and one ounce of spirit. Uh, and if you look, if you go through all of these cocktail books, you'll, you'll see vermouth treated as any other spirit, with the exception of its importance and prominence. And by the time you get to the old Waldorf uh, bar book in, in 1936, right before World War II, over half of every cocktail created includes vermouth as either a primary or essential ingredient in the cocktail. Uh, so uh, I argue, um, I, I think persuasively, that it's really vermouth, uh, more than any other spirit, that's responsible for the sort of cocktail culture as we know it in the United States. Uh, so it's I, really in that like, like 1850s period where um, you went from, uh, in the late 18th century, people drinking just straight spirits or punches to early 19th century, people kind of having these spirit bitter sugar cocktails to now mid-19th century, people are introducing imported ingredients like vermouth, and, and that's, that's what's really taking to the next level. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is coinciding, huh. by, by the way, at a time in uh, U.S. history and certainly New York City history of this sort of, this is when the robber barons are coming out. And these people are starting to get very wealthy. But there's also a middle class that's appearing during this time period, during the, um, uh, the late 19th century. 
And this new middle class all of a sudden has some extra money to start thinking about how they want to spend. They, want, they start buying nicer clothes. They start buying um, things for the home. Uh, and they also want different things to drink. So they're no longer satisfied just going to a beer hall, right, or just going to some other you know, kind of um, gaslight basement dive, having uh, a straight whiskey or straight brandy or something like that. Uh, they want something kind of um, a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more elegant, a little bit more drinkable. Uh, and that all, so this is all kind of happening at the same time. Yeah, and so uh, so that's kind of the, the backstory. And then obviously, I, I so, you know, I, the book cycles the revival of the spirit, because as we know, after World War II, vermouth goes from being, you know, one of the most kind of sophisticated, coolest things to be drinking uh, to something that just it completely falls off the map, right? And there's um, very good and interesting uh, historical reasons for that. Uh, mostly during World War II, all of our, you know, all of the producers were in Italy and France. The United States had uh, extremely bad tax laws. There was a quadruple tax on vermouth production, which made it prohibitively uh, expensive for U.S. producers to make it. And so... Uh, during World War II, all the French producers and Italian producers get cut off. Uh, and then there's also extremely anti-French and Italian sentiment going on. So people don't want to touch this stuff. Uh, it never really recovers, uh, you know, afterwards. And then what's really interesting is people start using less and less vermouth in their martinis in the Manhattans. And the response of the European producers is to reformulate their vermouths into, from these beautiful aperitif wines that could be drank on their own into something made for mixing, which is why you have now generations of people that think of that don't know what vermouth is, think of it only as a modifier or a mixer, right? Um, and that's why, and then it really falls off the map because then it's like, well, we didn't really want to use that much any of it, and now the stuff that's coming over is kind of disgusting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that takes us all the way up to, you know, frankly, um, 2010, 2011, um, you know, excluding the 1999 where uh, Andrew Quaddy puts out a very nice uh, vermouth called Vaya. Um, but that's a bit of a novelty for about a decade until uh, these past few years. And w- was there any one thing that you could say happened? Uh, or is it a, con- a bunch of events that happened together that have created this environment for people to uh, go out and produce a bunch of vermouths? It, it's a, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, you know, so it happened in such a short period of time. It, it does, and it happened. You know, yeah, and it's like I said. I mean, as I said earlier, it was. I think, you know, there is this craft. Um, this is this craft and classic cocktail movement going on. There's a craft spirits going on. Uh, you know, uh, Carl Sutton shows up in 2010 and decides he wants to kind of, to make kind of a, a really high quality uh, Californian vermouth, right? Um, these uh, the Neil Copland up in. Uh, Portland, Oregon, the very next year. Um, and Neil had known about um, uh, Carl uh, during that time, and they talked a little bit, and then they put out a, a vermouth. And then, uh, meanwhile, I'm over on the East Coast. I, I actually didn't even know about um, you know Neil or Carl when I first started. I, I, as I got closer, I, I, I caught wind of them. But they were still very small and very local. And then, as it turns out, uh, you know Bianca Moralia over in Brooklyn was working on her vermouth at the same time. Uh, and I think what we all realized independently was that vermouth really is this um, really amazing category of drink that could be delicious, people really could get into. We just didn't have access to it. Um, you know. And I think this coincided at a time where Americans were getting really into new and interesting flavors, such as the bitters. Uh, obviously, there was a huge bitter boom. I think people were moving away from the sort of overly sweet, kind of silly cocktails of the, the sex in the city age, the cosmopolitan and that sort of the Appletini sort of nonsense. Um, 
So, uh, so, so again, I think there's kind of a confluence of, of events that leads to, and, and then, by the way, actually, just to say on, you know, so then you have, and then Patrick Taylor, who's vermouth, we're going to try in just a second, uh, his hammer and tongs vermouth comes out. And then what happens is then you start getting the bigger European producers and other bigger companies realizing, wait a second, we need to start re-releasing, you know, or making, you know, higher quality vermouths as well, which, as I mentioned earlier, it's fascinating that, uh, you know, at Speed Vermouth, we launched a reserve vermouth, uh, which is aged just about three years ago, last year, uh, over a year ago. Uh, and then just a couple months ago, Martini Rossi releases its uh, reserve vermouth this year. So um, there's a lot, a lot of pieces going on, and people are playing off of each other, and the U.S. producers are making yeah. high-quality stuff, and the bigger producers are picking up and saying, all right, we've got to start making better stuff. And as the quality improves, uh, people are going to start drinking it more, which is what, what we've seen. I, uh, I, I hope you're right. It's something that I, I've loved for a while. Uh, we have it on our list. We have an extensive amount on our list at uh, Alta Linea. Uh, but people have not quite embraced it the way that, that I've hoped, um, and, uh, and, and I, I just love it. I just love it. It's uh, something that I always have, uh, and you know, we treat it the right way. We have it all in the refrigerated, which right. I think is uh, very important. Of course, yeah. Especially Altonia is an outdoor, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in the summer. Uh, and it's something that I, I drink at home. I have a, a bottle, a half bottle, if possible, of vermouth in the refrigerator at all times, so uh, I always find it stays fresher that way. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, you definitely want to treat it like a wine uh, I usually what I'll do is I'll, I'll bring you know I, I get some argon some gas or mm. something to spray it in or or if you can use even you know the, the what do they call those suck pumps for wine that, that suck out all the oxygen but yeah you really want that's really how you preserve you know that move. makes so much sense we actually have those at Alphalinia and we uh, I, I don't use it for the move but we are yeah. going to start doing that as of tonight fantastic yeah the, those pumps are fantastic so you've actually brought uh, some vermouth with you I have thank I've, you yeah no absolutely I, I love on-air on tastings I like off-air tastings too actually uh, so today I, I brought um, three different vermouths that I think really represent uh, some of these new styles of vermouth coming out. The first one we're going to taste is uh, uncouth vermouth made by Bianca Moralia out in, in Red Hook, Bro- uh, Brooklyn. Bianca makes um, really fantastic, interesting vermouths. And when I say interesting, really, really different than kind of your traditional um, sweet or dry styles. And mm-hmm. I, I see that you're, you're tasting it. What, what do you think? I could talk wow. about it, but what do you, having just tasted God, it, it, what looks, do you so it looks like uh, cider. Um has like the it, an unfiltered kind of quality to it. It's a little cloudy, um, kind of like uh, some of the orange wines that I like. And it actually is very vinous. It it tastes very much like wine, and it has kind of a cidery note to it as well. Lots of my mouth is watering. Lots of acidity. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you're picking up exactly on on what Bianca does and what what a lot of the uh, the new producers are doing, which was to leave in the wine quality to remind people that vermouths really are aromatized wines. They're not just modifiers. They're not just flavoring mm. agents. Um, her vermouths are unfiltered, and they are um, uh, they include um, uh, dozens of different botanicals. Bianca, all of Bianca's are hand foraged. Um, and, and locally, so she she go Bianca is amazing. She'll just like, head out in her hatchback uh, to her secret spots in the woods and pick wild um, herbs. Um, so uh, wow. one one of which is is mugwort, which is uh, in the Artemisia family. So that's also in the the same family as wormwood. Uh, she used that. This is and this is called her rhubarb vermouth, which and she uses little rhubarb it's as well. Incredibly complex. Every time I go back, there's I'm getting like a lot of like tea, white tea notes to it right now. It's 
Yeah. Awesome. It's, yeah, this one. And this is and very and it's very, it's uh, completely dry, I think, right? Or yeah. or very dry at least, but yes. without being. If you were to have a less good quality dry white vermouth, it's hard to sip it on its own. That's exactly. This, yeah, this that's, is very right. sippable. Yeah, these are these are all all three of these vermouths that I brought today are uh, are made to be drank on their own, mm. which which again is the way vermouths were would have been made for for a very long time. Now, long. what's your uh, thought about sipping vermouth with? Uh, do you like it kind of just chilled and straight? Do you like it with rocks? Do you put a peel or I know in France sometimes they actually put pieces of fruit in there because yeah. they're like peels peels already in it we, we want the actual fruit we want the fruit yeah I, you know it depends on on the vermouth mm-hmm. um, a lot of the sort of the newer vermouth certainly on Couth's mm-hmm. and um, uh, Patrick Taylor's the hammer and tongs and um, the imbue vermouths I, I those I actually like just chilled um, without ice if I if I'm drinking um, you know, one of the more classical style vermouths, maybe the Punta Mace or even the Carpano Antica, those I find to be a, a little syrupy to be mm-hmm. drinking straight, and so I'll add some ice cubes just to dilute it a little bit. Uh, so it really depends on, on the vermouth, but certainly, um, if I had to say, I think just chilled, um, you know, um, uh, no ice in a, in a wine glass is really the way to do it. So what you're about to taste now, this is the second one, this is my reserve vermouth. This is the uh, the armadillo cake uh, which has um, a base of a vintage Chardonnay, 32 different botanicals, um, sweetened with uh, caramel from dark Indian Muscovado sugar, sweetened with, or, uh, fortified with apple brandy. And then what's really cool about it is we let it uh, age for about three years, um, which is really special. The bottle actually says two years because we came in uh, just under three. I wanted to bottle it, so I put two on the label. But it's just about three years in stainless steel tanks. Um, and this, this one is uh, totally different than my than just the regular armadillo cake in that it, it's, it's mellowed. Um, why don't, what, do you, what do you think of that one? Oh, I think this is awesome. This is a more gulpable, I would say. <laughs> it's, uh, it's more easy to love, more mm-hmm. golden retriever-like. Yeah. Uh, it, it's going back and forth. It's, it reminds me, uh, in a way, of a really good uh, beer. Uh, I don't know what's in it. And then I'm also getting some like woody herbs, like rosemary. Um, and I keep going back and forth to those. Like, oh, is it more like, good beer-like? Is it more rosemary-like? Um, I'm interested about your use of uh, a Chardonnay. I, I, I would tell people Chardonnay is a, a neutral grape. I'd be like, no, Chardonnay is very flavorful. Um, but what's what's your idea about using Chardonnay as the base spirit or base wine for this? Yeah, so I tried. I mean, you know, I knew I wanted to use um, a, a local mm. wine, a New York wine. We were making New York vermouth. And I tried, you know, wines from all over our state. Uh, I wound up, you know, landing on uh, gravitating towards the North Fork wines, and with the the North Fork Chardonnay, I found it, frankly, to have, um, you know, a, a, f- a fairly neutral profile, um, but with some with really nice um, saline salinity to mm-hmm. it, right? From from being near the ocean, um, I found it to be highly acidic, which I thought was really kind of nice, uh, and then just the sort of the, the, the subtle undertones or some pears in there, and just some some really kind of subtle flavors that I thought just worked really well with the botanicals that I was, that I was picking. That's so. delicious. There are no hops in here at all? No, not, no, no, no hops. <laughs> yeah. I, it, yeah. The other, it's, it's like that floral kind of green florally note. That's, yeah. Other mm. people, actually, it's funny. A lot of people say that a lot of really? people mention the, uh, the, the beer common. They'll say, Oh, this kind of tastes like a, a beer. Uh, I'm not, I don't know what it, you know, there's 32 different, um, uh, spices and roots and pods. 
And what winds up happening, especially after the three years, is that all of these chemical components break down and, and interlace again. And so there's all these new flavors in there. If you're tasting hops, it's because chemical components from nine different things came together yeah, and formed something that, that, like that a tastes just, just like hops. Multi, so. Oh, it's so good. That's so, crazy. And then the third one is uh, this is called Hammer and Tongs. This is made by Patrick Taylor out in, uh, in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Patrick's fantastic. This one's called La Freak. This one's interesting. It's actually made with a red wine. Uh, which, right, which, because most red vermouths are made with white wine with lots of caramel color, right? A- absolutely, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, v- vermouth really is usually a, a white wine base, so this this makes it really interesting. And then he uses some really interesting herbs from uh, from Africa, uh, and, and, and as you'll, you'll taste it, you'll see the the difference in this one. Hmm. Does he use a Cabernet Franc base? He does. Okay, because it's really. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's that's, what, like a, that's a, what you get. Yeah, an herbaceous. Note, and I was wondering if that was from the herbs, or is that from just like that kind of herby grape? Yeah, I my you know you certainly get it on the nose. Mm-hmm. That's where I, I get it the the, the most. Um, and then the flavoring—it's hard to tell if that's his herbs or, or, or his wine. He just does a really nice job with with blending. It's really that in. integrated. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's separate. It seems like it's all part of the same thing. Everything's put together. Yeah, which which. Um, you know, mm. there's all different ways to make vermouth. I don't want to say there's a right way or, or, or a wrong way because some of the vermouths can be a little more disjointed, but they're still kind of interesting in the way that they'll kind of march down your tongue, and that's kind of cool too. Uh, but Patrick does a nice job of integrating everything. How would you even use this as a sipping at the end of a meal? Like, how do you how do you use something like this? Well, for this, one, yeah, I think um, yeah, I think the La Freak would be fantastic at the at the end of a meal. Uh, I use it. I think it works really well in Negronis. Um, not not to get into sort of the you yeah. know, the mixing straight versus cocktails, but and you have great cocktail recipes uh, in your book as well. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. There's over forty cocktails. Um, a, a good a good group of them are made by some uh, some really fantastic bartenders from around the country. Charles Jolie, who uh, just left the Avery recently, and. Um, Pam Witznitzer, who just opened Seamstress, which is doing uh, extremely well. It's got Josh Sontag, who's uh, at the Ace Hotel, the, uh, um, the the Breslin Lobby Bar. And one of my favorites, uh, Amoria Margot Southern Tea. If uh, you're listening, please come on the show. We have to reach out ha, to him. Has Southern not come on, on your show yet? Not yet. Uh, he'll, he'll, that's that's, that's I, an I easy ask. I love that bar. I yeah. love, love, love that bar. Yeah, that's actually, that's, it's, it's actually my favorite bar. Um, as well in the city, certainly one of them. And if you notice, um, several of the, a lot of the photos uh, in the book were actually taken out of Moria Margo. Stunning. The, the photographs are beautiful. They're they're sexy. They're uh, the the book is awesome. Adam Ford, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. This has been great, Joe. Thank you for having me. Guys, make sure you pick up uh, Vermouth, the revival of the spirit that created America's cocktail culture. It is required reading if uh, if you're into cocktails or, or vermouth. This is uh, such a fantastic book, and it's absolutely beautiful. It will look great on, uh, on your bookshelf. Uh, Thank you so much uh, to everyone for listening. Uh, I also want to give a big shout-out to uh, producer Jory and technician uh, Liz. You guys are awesome. Thank you for making sure this show happens every week. Uh, thanks to our uh, uh, our sponsor, Michter's. Uh, really great in the Manhattan with, uh, with some vermouth. Uh, and we'll see you next week, 10 o'clock, on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This has been In the Drink.
Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.